computers. This is Intelligent Performance. Welcome to Intelligent Performance, where we are fanatical about excellence in human endeavor. And today we welcome Terry Tucker, an extraordinary individual who's navigated life and death negotiations all the way through to cancer and losing a limb because of it. It's an extraordinary tale of resilience, highly developed skills, an incredible mindset to help get through really challenging times. And if you want a masterclass on how to negotiate in life and death scenarios, this is the podcast for you. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive straight in. Terry, thanks so much for being on the show. And where I'd love to start is actually your take on intelligent performance. What does what do you think intelligent performance means? Well, Michael, first of all, thanks for having me out. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to talking with you today. Yeah, intelligent performance. Um, I, I guess I would say that it it would have to do with with the experiences that you have in life and using those experience those experiences to perform. I guess you can't use the the word in the definite or in the definition, is it? <laughs> so, but when you use those experiences to perform at your optimum level, and and I I think that's. You know, that's something we, we all should do to learn things, to be curious, and then to apply those in how we can be the best human being that we're capable of becoming. Mm. And I think you epitomize that definition, actually, because uh, in reading your bio and getting to know a bit about you, Terry, you, know, you have what many would call an, like an illustrious career where you've done, actually, I'd say diverse, right? And that And that's what's really, really striking about your story. And I guess where I'd love to start in terms of this discussion is really around where what you've taken specifically from the high stakes negotiation work that you were doing. Because I think when we speak to, and I'm sure our audience and, and, and a lot of the people we work with, they really start, negotiation is a tough one, right? And getting it, getting it right is really, really important. And as you become a more senior leader, then negotiation is like what you basically fall back on and if you suck at it effectively <laughs> life can be really really hard so tell me what was your how did you get into this kind of SWAT team negotiation role what was that kind of story so I was a I was a police officer in Cincinnati Ohio here in the United States and there was an opening on the SWAT team for negotiator and for those of you who are honest who don't understand how most SWAT teams are are set up there's usually two groups there's a tactical team which are the men and women with the, the the guns and the toys and all that kind of stuff. And then there are negotiators. And we used to joke with the tactical team that if we did our job right, they didn't get to use any of their toys and, and things like that. So negotiating, we had to do the same thing that the tactical team did. We had to do a physical fitness uh, part of it. We had to meet with the psychologist. We had to take psychological exams. We had to meet with the command staff. And then eventually we met with the team and it was a it was an all or nothing. If one person on the team said, "Hey, uh, you know, I've worked with Terry before. I don't really like him. I don't like the way he works, or something like that," then you didn't get on the team. It was everybody had to give you the thumbs up. And so I applied to to be on this. I went through all the steps, and then I got on. And I'll and I'll never forget my first negotiation, my first practice negotiation, because we used to train every month. My first negotiation, very simple a hostage and a hostage taker in the locked room behind the door. I spent the entire time talking to the hostage. And after we were done, and, and where we learn is in the debrief after all these, we had a psychologist 
that worked with us, they were like, uh, you do realize that we're supposed to talk to the hostage taker, not so much the hostage. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of figured that out. I guess I have a lot to learn. So that was my, my first, I kind of blew it as, as a negotiator. But, you know, I mean, think about the first time you ever did anything in your life. First time you drove a car, first time you studied for an algebra test, first time you, you know, you made a meal, were you any good at it? Obviously, I had a lot of work to do and, and I, I love doing it. So I was absolutely willing to do the work. And do you think at a high stakes negotiation like that, where there's a clear, you know, it actually is a matter of life and death, do, do you think the principles of negotiating at that level work in a day to day, you know, a more sanguine environment of <laughs> negotiating a project with your boss, as an example? They do. And, and I'll give you a, when I, when I first started as a negotiator, I remember they gave us a formula of how we communicate with each other. And, and it, it, has to, it doesn't specifically apply to being in law enforcement and doing high stakes where, where lives are online. It, it, can do, it can be applied to any negotiation that you're involved in. And the formula, if I, get, I want to get it right, it was 738.55. So 7% of how we communicate with each other are the words that we use. And think about that. I mean, we spend so much time agonizing over, am I saying the right thing? That's only 7% of how your message gets communicated. 38% of it is the tone of voice that you use with that message. And then 55% of it is your body language and your facial expressions. So if you think of my job as a police officer on the street... 99% of what I did was face-to-face with another individual, whether I was stopping you to giving you for, to give you a ticket for running a stop sign or whether I was showing up for a radio run on a bar fight. There was face-to-face with people. So if I was talking to you, Michael, and, and I saw that you were kind of, you know, looking around, I'm like, well, hmm, maybe Michael wants to run or escape. Or if, if I'm standing there talking to you and you're balling up your fists, well, maybe Michael wants to fight me. And I can see that, and I can take those visual clues and I can do what's appropriate. I can sit you down. I can handcuff you. I can put you in my car, whatever's appropriate. But as negotiators, we didn't have that 55%. I couldn't see that, you know, I said something to you as the hostage taker and you kind of rolled your eyes and you're like, what an idiot. I can't believe he said that to me. And so I had to figure things out. We had to figure things out, certainly based on what people were saying, but also by what they weren't saying and how they were saying it. So there were a lot of times we were on scene of a negotiation and we had no idea why we were there. What happened? What precipitated this? What got us to that point? And so we would ask how and what questions. We tried to stay away from why questions because why questions sound accusatory. Well, Michael, why did you do that? Oh, wait a minute. Is he, does he think I'm doing something wrong? I can get to the same information by saying something softer, like, what got us to this point, Michael? That's a lot softer than he's accusing. Why? Why? Yeah. And and the other thing is that we, when we started out, I never said to the person, hi, I'm uh, I'm Sergeant Tucker, or I'm, I'm Officer Tucker, or whatever it was. It was like, no, hi, I'm Terry. What, what's your name? And sometimes they're like, you know, you need to know my name. Okay. What would you like me to call him? And, and you're, you're trying to do, if you think about it, Think about every relationship that you've ever had in your in your life with your with your boss, with your your spouse, with your children, with your parents. What you're trying, what what governs every one of those relationships is the overarching theme of trust. 
Mm. You have, and in order for your you and your boss to have a good relationship, you have to trust each other. Same thing with your spouse, same thing with your kids. And if you don't, it's hard to get anything accomplished. So I'm trying to get an individual who's probably having the worst day of their life. I mean, you know, if your house is surrounded by the police and you're talking to me, it's obviously not a good day. Mm. I'm trying to get that person to trust me. And and that 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 involves any negotiation, whether you're trying to negotiate a contract, to buy a company, to to have your wife decide she wants to marry you, whatever it is. So trust is the overarching theme that we use to negotiations. And it's super tricky to achieve when the innate power imbalance is obvious in that context, right? And so how how do they how do you establish trust when they know that you your goal and you're backed up by a bunch of highly kitted out guys, women with weapons just outside their front door. Like that seems like a a relationship which <laughs> I guess is essentially built on a lack of trust, actually. And inherent that you've got your own vested interest and and they may have theirs. That is that not the case or well, in a way it is. I, I I mean, yeah, we have all these tools, we have all this equipment, but at the end of the day, how this ends is really going to come down to what decisions they want to make. And one of the things that we we used to use to answer your question is is what we call tactical empathy. In other words, help me to understand where you're coming from. Not agree with it. I mean, if I'm talking to a guy who just murdered three people, I'm not going to be like, oh, yeah, I totally agree that you did that. But no, help me to understand why you did what you did or what got you to this point in your life. And by letting the person tell their story, explain things going on, that develops that trust. And I always used to say what we did, I don't, if you think about when we were all kids and we were growing up, we all would go to the park and we would play on the teeter-totter or the seesaw, whatever you ended up calling it. So when we started negotiating with somebody, their their emotional brain way up in the air, their rational brain way down on the ground. By asking these open-ended how and what questions, we were hoping to bring that teeter-totter or seesaw to equilibrium and then eventually get to a point where their rational brain was way up in the air and their emotional brain was down on the ground because we all make better decisions with our rational brain than we do with our emotional brain. Got you. And so talk us through what this looks like, right? So you, let's say you got a guy in a house where he's holding a, a couple of hostages. He's, I don't know, something he's... Uh, 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 what's interesting about this, I had an experience when I lived in America where on the street I was living, they closed I just came back from San Francisco and they'd closed down my street and there was literally SWAT teams running around. And I was like, wow, this is full on. And I think the scenario that it's, it's someone had been shot, two people had been shot and they were trying to hunt down the gunman. So I, let's just play this out and like to give the inside s- s- scoop effectively to what that conversation goes like. So when you first, actually, first of all, like how do you even get in communication with this person who's, you know, Let's say inside a house. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I I've been out of it long enough that we had we we didn't have cell phones. There were no cell phones when I was doing this. So we had a what was called a throw phone. So it was just a regular telephone that had like a two mile cord on, it. and a tactical <laughs> team literally it did it had a two mile cord on. It. 
And and the only thing you, you could talk between whoever had it on one end and whoever had it on another. You couldn't, you know, dial out and order pizza or anything like that. And, and so so the tactical team would usually put it on the front porch and we would start out using a, a bullhorn or a megaphone and saying, Hey, you know, there's a phone on the front porch. Can you just pick it up? Can we talk to it? now there were some times where it would be hours and they wouldn't pick up the phone. So we would continue to just almost wear them down you know hey pick up the phone we really want to talk to you hi you know this is terry come on come on pick up the phone we, we and we would just go on and on and on so let's for for your audience's sake and we don't want to spend three hours here say okay they, they grabbed the phone you know they, they took it inside and now we would start this discussion and it would be like i said hi i'm terry what's your name you don't need to know my name okay what do you want me to call you you, you know, call me Bob. I, I, that's not my name, but call me Bob. Okay, Bob, how you doing today? And then you would wait and you would let them respond. And they'd be, obviously, I'm not doing real good. I'm surrounded, my house is surrounded by the police. You know, obviously, I'm not really doing real good, Terry. What are you, stupid? And, and you, you got a lot of it. They called you names. They're like, you're a moron. You must be new to this. I mean, you got all the kind of things. And, and, and the other thing we would use would be mirroring. So we would let them talk. And then whatever the last three words that they said, or the most important one or two words that they said, we would use our curious voices and we would say, so you think I'm stupid? And then we would go silent for at least five seconds. And what that would do, we don't like silence as human beings. We don't, we don't like that sort of pregnant pause. And that would get them talking again. And, and whatever they, they said it for a while, and then whatever their last two or three words were, we do it again. We do it again. And we do it again. And, and it's, it's a, and we would say that, you know, they might say, you know what? I want a car. I want a pizza and I want a pack of cigarettes. The other thing we did is we never gave them anything without getting something in return. So it may be is I want a cigarette. Give me a hostage. I'm not giving you a hostage. Give me a magazine out of your gun. We may negotiate that. It may be, give me a bullet. I'll give you a bullet. You give me a cigarette. Again, I'm giving you something. I'm staying true to my word. And the last thing I'll say about this is we never lied to people. So people would say to us, all right, I'll come out, but you got to promise me I'm not going to go to jail. And we would have to say, well, Michael, when you come out, you are going to go to jail. And then we would try to deflect the conversation to something more palatable. And so, it, there, you know, it, there's no, people are like, well, tell me a typical negotiation. There is no typical negotiation. <laughs> You know, it just depends on where the person is, where their headspace is, and things like that. And and then we would just sort of take it from there. I'm t- I talk very fast, which is something that's a detriment as a negotiator. You need to slow down your speech, and you need to use your curious voice. And a lot of times we would say to people, you know, people would say to us, well, you need to do this. And I would have to say, how am I supposed to do that, Michael? And what that did was took the ball and put it back in your court. (laughs) And now it's like, I've engaged you with that question. Michael, how am I supposed to do that? And now you're thinking, well, how's he supposed to do that? Well, oh, so now I've got you engaged in helping me get you out. (laughs) So So let's break this down then. So what's what's the method behind the action here? So the repeating piece... Uh, that sounds initially. That just sounds like that would be really bloody annoying more than anything else, Terry. If I was, if you did that to me, let's say in this conversation, um, 
why would you risk the annoyance versus the opportunity of the engagement, perhaps? Because part of what we're trying to do is burn off a lot of that emotional energy. Right. And, okay. and we do that by getting them to talk. The more they talk, the more that energy gets burned off. So yeah, you, you risk upsetting them, but at the same time, it's all how you do it. And it's all, you know, that we, we don't like that, that, like I said, we don't like that silence and we all know that, but think about them. They're in a highly stressed out situation. You know, you and I are sitting here, it's relaxed. You can think of things like, well, that would kind of tick me off. They're not thinking like, they're like you know, if you ask me that question, one, now, now sometimes people would say that, you know, if you ask me that question one more time, I'm going to kill a hostage, you know, or if you don't give me a car in an hour, I'm going to kill a hostage. We would, we might, we might hang up on and then call them back five minutes before the deadline. Deadlines almost never materialized. They, you know, if they said, I'm going to kill them in an hour, if you don't give me a car, we didn't give them a car. They weren't getting a car, you know, and it would be like, I might say, well, Michael, how am I supposed to do that? And now all of a sudden we're talking and that deadline passes and nothing happens. So we would, you know, it was kind of calculated when we might call them back. It was thing, things like that. It, it was, there was a lot of strategy that kind of went into it. And, and we never did that. It wasn't like there was just me making decisions. There was me negotiating. And then there was another negotiator sitting right next to me, listening to everything that was going on. And then there were three or four or five negotiators kind of working the crowd, trying to get intelligence. Why are we here? What happened? So as the primary, you may get a note from your secondary sitting next to you that says, don't talk about their mother. Because the people in the crowd found out that he had a huge fight with his mother and that he took a gun and he barricaded himself or he grabbed his sister and took a gun and now he's got a hostage. So, okay, we're, we're not talking about their mother. That was another thing people would people would say to us, you know, oh, I just want to talk to my mom or I just want to talk to my dad or I want to talk to my wife. And we never, let, well, almost never let them do that because a lot of times that was a precursor to them committing suicide. You know, I'm going to talk to my wife. I was like, look, you did this to me, you SOB. And then they would shoot themselves. So I was like, no, we're not, we're not, we're, you're, we're not going to give you that closure that you're looking for. So we would not let them talk to whoever they wanted to talk, unless we felt that had nothing to do with it. And maybe them, maybe mom saying, hey, Mike, come on out. This is ridiculous. Would help us in some way. So we, we calculated all that before we did it. So who's making the call? Because that's one of the, I mean, as in who's making the final decision? Because if you've got four or five people doing some intelligence, they may have more expertise, better perspectives, et cetera, et cetera. You've got your number two and then your number one, the primary, as you said. Who's making the call as to what the actual way to go is? So there's a commander over the tactical team. Usually it was a lieutenant when I was doing it. And then there was a, there was a, a commander over the negotiators and and they're all kind of listening we're all in a staging area that's where we we would negotiate from so the tactical team commander and and the the negotiating team commander in addition to there was usually an assistant chief there and they they would you know we would say hey look i think we should do this or i think it, so we would we would sit around it was like a, you know being at a board board table all right i think we should do this here's why i'm thinking that and they would all and eventually it was Ultimately, the assistant chief that would make the decision or the chief if he was on scene and the, the tactical commander and the negotiating commander would talk about this. Like, okay, let's do this. Or let's, I mean, sometimes I, I remember we had a 15 year old kid 
and we had done, we spent hours with this kid. And all the things that we usually work that would work with an adult were working with the kid. And so he's like, all right, we'll call you back. So we got together and we're like, we're kind of at wit's end. I don't know what to do. And somebody finally said, hey, he's a kid. Let's scare him. So we had the tactical team break a window and they threw in what's called a flashbang device. It's a it's a little canister. It, it kind of makes a loud and yeah, makes a really loud bang and it makes a bright light. And we're like, let's 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 see if we can scare the kid. And and we did. And when, so they, they did it, they threw it in, had this big explosion and this bright light, and within 10 minutes the kid was out. You know, so sometimes you gotta throw the book out and just be like, okay. If this was my kid, what would I do as a parent? How how would we approach this? Because like I said, we I mean, we negotiated with 15-year-old kids, we negotiated with hardened felons that had been in prison and they could care less what the police said. They, we had, you know, I, I we had no authority over them. They didn't care. And I guess I'll end with this. About 90% of the time we were successful at getting people out. We never lost a hostage. But there were a lot of times it was just a barricaded subject, somebody with a gun. Maybe they were, you know, shooting out the window or something like that. At the end of the day, it was their decision how this was going to end. And some of these people knew that this was their third strike and they were going to go to prison for the rest of their life. And they chose to end their life. They're like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to spend the rest of my days in prison. I'm going to end my life. And why that's always tragic, and it certainly was, I don't mean to sound callous about this. I never lost any sleep over it. And the reason I didn't was because I knew I did everything I could to try to get this person out. I worked with incredibly great people and I had really, really, really good training. And like I said, at the end of the day, it wasn't my decision for him to end his life. It was his decision. So like I said, 90% of the time things ended peacefully and quote unquote happily. But about 10% of the time, the person decided that they weren't going to spend the rest of their life in prison. So- it's, yeah, it's incredibly powerful. And I'm sure a lot of people never really think about this stuff. Like you hear about it kind of, but it's kind of like shielded to some degree from the public. Tell me, um, I'm just intrigued around your comment around the training. Like what what were the kind of biggest takeaways for you in that process? You, you kindly shared how the first time you did it, you were... Worse than average, or whatever you might want to call it. Oh, Tell me, what were your biggest takeaways in in that piece? Like, where where do you see your biggest, let's say, transformation personally in that space? Really, in in the and this is going to sound kind of weird because everybody's going, but of course we all do that. Was in the listening part of it. I, I mean, we we talk a lot about listening. We listen, so many of us listen to respond versus listening to understand. And listening to respond is, I'm not really listening to you. I'm figuring out what I want to say so that I can interject myself into this conversation. That's not effective. What's effective is, what did that, what did he just say? And then I may be like, hey, Michael, did I, did I hear you right? Did you just say X, Y, Z? And again, a curious voice, a calming voice, a relaxed voice. And you may have said something, and I was like, well, help me understand where you're coming from, Michael. And we can do that in any, you know, you're negotiating with the business. We, we, we always used to say no deal is better than a bad deal. And so 
we weren't going to do something. We weren't going to give something. We weren't going to offer something if we knew it was bad, that it was going to end in something negative. So listening was something that, that I got real good at. It's like the person said this, or the person didn't say what I thought they would say. So we're going to have to explore that a little bit more. And, and we would ask those how and what questions. What, what does that mean to you, Michael? And then get you to talk. And the more we did that, the more then I would say, okay, Michael, what, what I understand you saying is, and then I would parrot it back to you. Oh, yeah. Terry gets me. He understands me. That's building empathy. That's building trust. And that gets us a little bit closer to getting you out safely. Oh, yeah. Wow. Extraordinary. And um, so it sounds very methodical in terms of the actual approach. And... I love the burning off piece. I have never come across someone talking about that as a burning off the energy piece. So is that, just talk about that briefly. How, so you would risk the potential upset to burn off. So you're saying that at that high level of exasperation, that um, emotional level, are you saying that it's, they can't maintain that? And typically is that hard, like when you say burn off, it sounds like there's an expiry to it. Would that be right? It's more... I mean, think about uh, think about when you go to the gym, or think about when you go out for a run. I mean, there gets to a point where, man, I'm exhausted. I mean, mm. I'm spent. I, I've I put all this energy into this thing, and now I'm just beat. And that's really where they were. I mean, they weren't, you know, pumping iron or running, but they were so beat up and so, you know, that their muscles were tense. Their their emotions were, were to the point, you know, that was another thing. We would, we would label their emotions and that was key. And that's why for us, it was an exhausting process because you had to get down in the weeds with these people. You got to get down in the dirt. So if, if you were like, you know, yelling and screaming about your mother and I said, Michael, you, you seem a little upset about your mother. Oh my God. I just totally missed that. I told her, you're not, you're not a little upset with your mother. You're pissed as hell at your mother. That's where I had to go. And that's where you had to go as a negotiator. You had to get down there on their level oh. and be like, okay, you know, yeah, we're, we're both feeling it. And so they're, they're, they're just so keyed up and so emotional that it gets to a point where eventually, oh my God, I'm just spent. I'm exhausted. I've exhausted. I burn off all that emotional energy and now I'm tired. And we liked it when you were tired. I, I, I'll give you a, I'll give you a quick story. I had a, a guy, this individual wanted to commit suicide. And this probably started at seven, eight o'clock at night. He slit his wrists. That didn't work. And he then had the brilliant uh, idea to put his head in the oven, turn the gas on and put his head in the, in the oven. Well, that didn't work either. I know you're laughing. I know. I, I, some of those people are the brightest. <laughs> then he called a relative. And he had a gun and he said, you know, I'm going to kill myself. Well, the relative called the police. We get there. I'm talking to him. Now it's probably three, four o'clock in the morning. So think about it. I mean, you know, it starts at eight o'clock night. He goes through all this emotional energy. I'm going to kill myself. All that goes through that. And then he's, I'm talking to him and he said, you know, Tara, I'm just really tired. I want to come out. I said, yeah, do that. I said, you come out. I said, I'll come down to the scene and we'll talk face to face. We'll talk like men. He's like, yeah, I'd, re I'd really like. I said, put the gun down, but take the phone with you. When you get outside, here's what's going to happen. And we would, 
we would choreograph this. Here is what's going to happen so that there were no surprises. Tactic, tactic team is going to tell you to do stuff, do what they tell you to do, and then I'll come down to the seat. Am I going to get handcuffed? Yes, you're going to get handcuffed. You're going to lay on the ground. I said, but just do what they tell you to do. As long as you do that, everybody will be safe. So he hangs up the phone, which is not uncommon because we're conditioned that when a conversation is over that we hang up the phone. 30 seconds later, tactical officer comes on the radio and says, we heard a gunshot. And I thought, you didn't. He did. Shot himself in the head. But he shot himself at such an angle that the bullet went in underneath his temple, underneath his skin, right at his temple, went around his skull and came out the other side. A very bloody wound, but a very superficial wound. It never penetrated his skull, never penetrated his brain. So here's a guy three times in the course of an evening that tried to kill himself, and he, and he didn't do it. So, you know, as much as we say, when it's your time, it's your time. When it's not your time, it doesn't matter what you do. It's still not wild. So if, it, if that's not a divine in- intervention, I'm not sure what it is. Exactly. Uh, yeah. That's the kind of thing. Nope. Not your time. Wow. That poor bloke, man. Like what experience. So, so I think what's interesting about your story is obviously you were on the, you were dealing with people going through their worst day and then you got to experience your own worst day and, and what's been for some would be a life-ending decision or or one way you're really confronting your mortality so just tell us what was it like when the roles flipped as it were where you were starting to experience the worst day and you can't negotiate your way out of this one necessarily i tried (laughs) i I, uh, yeah 2012 i was diagnosed with a rare form of melanoma and most people think of melanoma is too much exposure to the sun and it affects the melon the the pigment in our skin I have an incredibly rare form that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands. Mine appeared on the bottom of my foot when I had a callus break open. And initially, I didn't think much of it because I was coaching high school basketball at the time. But after a few weeks of it not healing, I went to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed it to me. And it was just a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it. No dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But he said, you know what? I'll send it off to pathology just to make sure. And then two weeks later, I received that call that we all dread. And as I mentioned, this guy was a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having explaining to me what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming. Until finally, he just laid it out for me. He said, Terry, I've been a doctor for 25 years, and I have never seen the form of cancer that you have. You have this incredibly rare form of melanoma. And he recommended I go to a, a very um, unique uh, cancer hospital here in the United States in Houston. And I did. And they pretty much told me, if you get a miracle, you'll live five years. More than likely, you'll be dead in two because we have nothing to offer you other than surgery. There are no therapies. There are no medicines, no drugs that we can offer you. And I said, okay, I've been given a death sentence. Maybe I can turn that into a life sentence. And that's what I've been trying to do for these the last 11 and a half years now. So how have you channeled that death sentence to be one which is, I guess, how do you stay positive when you're just staring down the barrel of your mortality and every day literally is your last, potentially? It, it, it is. And, and I think I think two things. I think one is, is purpose. When I graduated from college, my father um, was dying of cancer. And he had end-stage breast cancer back in the 1980s. 
And they really didn't know how to deal with a man with breast cancer. And so they pretty much told him to go home and die. And he lived another three and a half years. And I believe he did because he had a purpose. Now, he was in real estate. He loved real estate. He actually worked up till two weeks before he died. And I sort of tucked that in the back of my mind and said, you know, when it's when it's my turn, I need to have a purpose. I need to have something to do with my life that that I feel is is my it, it's something I need to do. It's something that I, that is purposeful for me. Because if you don't, you sit around and you think of all the negative things that go on. You and I were talking before we started to record. The Cleveland Clinic here in the United States estimates that we have sixty to seventy thousand thoughts that pass through our mind every day. Eighty percent of those thoughts are negative. So it's real easy for us to go to the negative, to the dark side, to let those demons of doubt sort of creep into your mind. So I needed, I needed to have a purpose. And my purpose was, you know, I, people were like, you should write a book, you should speak, you should. And I was, you know, being a police officer, I was like, I, I don't want people to know about me. I don't want people to understand what's going on in my life. I'm a very private individual. But if if you want to make a difference, you've got to put yourself out there. You've got to share. You've got to be authentic. You've, you've got to be able to walk the walk in addition to talking the talk. So I had my foot amputated in 2018 as a result of the cancer. and my leg amputated in the middle of the COVID pandemic above the knee. And I still have tumors in my lungs, which I'm treated for every three weeks. And the last thing I'll say about this, and, and, the, and the reason I think that I've managed to come this far is... You can't tell us who's looking at me, but I'm six foot eight inches tall. And I actually went to college on a scholarship. And one of the things that team sports taught me, and I mm. think it can be whatever team you're on, is the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. You know, you realize on a team that if you don't do your job, not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, et cetera. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. Mm. So I guess for someone who confronts their end of their life on a regular basis, has done for a while, you've exceeded, let's say, all expectations of life <laughs> currently. Yeah. What what's your challenge, or I guess what's your message to um, to those listening to this? I, I guess I can answer that with with a story, um, which I, I and I every time I tell this, I think this this is such an amazing because it's it's true. There was a professor here in the United States at Johns Hopkins University uh, back in the 1950s who did a very simple experiment with rats. He took rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long the average rat could tread water. The average rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as those rats were getting ready to sink and drown, he reached in, grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. And then he took the exact same rats and put them back in that exact same tank of water. And the second time around, on average, those rats treaded water for 60 hours. Wow. Now think about that. First time, 15 minutes. It's not like your business is going to go under or you're going to flunk a test. You're going to die. Your life is going to be over. And the second time around, 60 hours, which said to me two things. Number one, the importance of whole in our lives. That, you know, if we know we're doing the right thing, if we know we're on the right course, maybe not today, maybe not this month, maybe not even this year, by some point in time, more than likely we'll get to where we, we need or we want to be. And the second thing it taught me was just how much more our physical bodies can handle 
than we ever thought they could. Now, don't get me wrong. I think everybody has a breaking point. I think that breaking point is so much further down the road than mm. we ever thought it was. We quit. We give up. We give in long before our physical bodies really need to. And I mm. think that has to do with going back to our minds and being able to to callous or control the thoughts in your mind. And that's a really simple statement, that last piece, right? But the question is, is the how, right? Because I know that's like, especially come back to the communication piece and intense environments or the stress of life. What do you think is at the core of that in terms of that managing, controlling of the mindset? I don't think it's that difficult. I think we make it difficult. And and I will offer this to your audience. I, I do this every single day of my life. Do one thing, at least one thing every day that scares you, that makes you nervous, that makes you uncomfortable, that's potentially embarrassing. It doesn't have to be a big thing. But if you do those small things every day, when the big disasters of life hit you, and they hit all of us, we lose somebody who's close to us, we get let go from our job, we find out we have a chronic or a terminal illness, you'll be so much more resilient to handle that pain when it presents itself. And so, you know, it's simple. You get up in the morning, oh, I don't want to make the bed. Make the bed. You know what? I, 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 want, I don't want to get off the couch and go to the gym. Get off the couch and go to the gym. You know, I don't want to practice with my prosthetic leg today. It hurts. Get up and practice with your prosthetic leg. Do things that make you uncomfortable. The The answer is simple, but we don't like that. We don't like uncomfortable things. We like it when it's, our brains are hardwired that way. They're hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and to seek pleasure. So to the brain, the way things are right now, the status quo, hey, comfortable and familiar, leave it alone. Michael, you know this. Your audience knows this. The only way we grow, the only way we get better, the only way we improve is if we step outside those comfort zones and we do things that make us uncomfortable. Wow. It is simple. I love that. Really, really powerful. Sorry. You've turned your lessons into a book, Sustainable Excellence. Just give us a, I think that's a really interesting term. And one thing we really like about intelligent performance is that sustainability component because you can do things quickly in a sprint methodology, but you can't, sustainable is a whole different ball game. So just tell us briefly, what what's the message behind that book in terms of what, why does that, why did you choose that title specifically or, and focus around that sustainable piece? Yeah, yeah. people always ask me, you know, sustainable excellent. Well, let's start with excellent. What is excellent? And my response is, I don't know. What do, you, what do you mean you don't know? You wrote the book. How, how can you possibly not know what, what excellence is? And, and my response is always, I think excellence, kind of like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. You have to define excellence. You and I may look at a at a painting or a sports team or a, or a movie, and you may say, man, that is excellent. And I may say, yeah, I think it's good, but I don't think it's excellent. So I think that the excellence part is something that you have to determine sort of in your heart, sort of in your soul. The sustainable part of it kind of goes back to what we were just talking about. How do you sustain excellence? Well, you sustain it by adapting, by overcoming, by doing things differently. I mean, people aren't stupid. I mean, especially if you look at it from a company point of view, all right, you make it to the pinnacle, you get to the top of the mountain. And what do most people do? They kind of kick back in the chair, put their feet up on the desk and pour themselves a drink and be like, I've arrived. Yeah, you have. But six months from now, your competitor is going to go boom right past you. And you're going to be like, what happened? What happened is you didn't sustain that excellence. 
you didn't find ways to continue to improve, to continue to innovate, to step outside your comfort zones that got you to the top of the mountain and do things different. So mm. it's it's the same thing. If you look for a way to constantly improve, to, to, and 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 the thing I'll say about this is, in, if you're going to be successful, it can't be about the the end game. It can't be about where you get to the pinnacle of that mountain. It has to be about the journey, because if it's not. You're not going to put in the work. You're not going to do the difficult things if you care about the end game. You've got to love it. I love the grind. I love getting down in the dirt and making this happen. I love the work. You love the work. You'll get to the sustainable part of it and get to the top of the mountain. What a powerful message and a great place to leave this conversation. Um, Tara Fuller, there's a lot more we could talk about, but thank you so much for your generosity, your vulnerability. Your openness and um, yeah, your realness, which you brought to this conversation, it's been um, yeah, I'm, I'm moved and inspired, and uh, I need to go and do something which scares me, which is <laughs> well, Michael, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed talking with you. Absolute pleasure. <laughs>